Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, a podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm an investigative journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are economists, scientists, politicians, academics and activists. They explain the complexities of the ecological, economic and energy crises we face today and reveal their solutions to mitigate the damage to our future. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to www.planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. I have a very special guest for you today, all the way from COP26 at Glasgow. Gary Jufa is the governor of Oro province in Papua New Guinea, and he's been fighting to save his people, his land, his province, his country from illegal logging cartels for decades. Logging is a huge problem all over the world, but in Southeast Asia, it is really run as a form of mafia, as a neo-colonialism where indigenous people are abused in a form of modern slavery. The companies at the heart of it all actually come from Malaysia, where they have destroyed the vast majority of their own country's forests. They're now expanding into Papua New Guinea, the Solomon Islands, and even the Arctic. Gary is representing his nation and his forests over at COP26. In our interview, he speaks beautifully about the role of indigenous stewards of the forests, critically about the role of green financing in protecting our future, and bravely when revealing exactly what the timber mafia is up to in his home. Gary, you're a very special guest. I've never had a politician on the show. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. I I have to uh, qualify myself. I see myself as an indigenous activist that happens to be in parliament. Wow, there's not very many of them in the world. <laughs> Just briefly then, how did you go from Indigenous activist to Parliament? Well, well, I've always been an activist, and, and I also want to say this. Uh, you know, the word Indigenous, I feel we may be abusing it, because I, I tend to look at us all as being Indigenous. We're Indigenous to Earth, you know. Uh, and once we start thinking that way, then we can all take responsibility. You know, that's my opinion on the, that word indigenous. Uh, I've always been an activist ever since I was a child. Uh, my grandfather who raised me, uh, would take me on these amazing walks through our forests, uh, and, and show me amazing things and teach me about every plant and creature that we came across on those walks. And I came to have a huge appreciation for these citizens of this world, you know, and I spent a lot of time with him and others, uh, and the relationship between my people and our forest was very strong. It was as if we were children of that forest, you know, and we were connected to that forest. We were grounded, we were connected to nature, you know, and so I've always been uh, very passionate about the environment. And along my journey in life, I maintained that and it grew stronger and stronger as I came to realize more and more that humans were moving away. They were drifting too far away from shore in regards to the forest, in regards to nature. They were disconnecting so much. And, and then they were becoming destructive towards the forest, their own home. They were, they, they were not appreciative and grateful anymore. And not only were they disconnected, but they were now hostile and dangerous. 
to the forest and all the creatures, flora and fauna that lived in it. So you think that our attitude towards the environment and the climate is due to an alienation from our own nature? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we are connected to nature, all of us, all beings, all breathing, living life forms. And we have deliberately disconnected ourselves. We've become both ignorant and arrogant in how we behave towards, you know, nature, you know, uh, and there will be severe repercussions for that. And there are now severe repercussions that we can see, you know, Mm. I worked in customs for 16 years and I worked in an area that gave me a very intimate look at, you know, how trade affected you know, the environment, how human behavior, uh, how greed and how, you know, the need for power basically affected how humans treated the natural environment, you know, uh, working in customs. I worked in the enforcement division, specifically within the investigations, prosecutions, and intelligence branch. And so we were privy to a lot of in- information and intelligence about things that were happening. And, you know, I was basically at the forefront, observing how large companies behave, you know, uh, not the entire picture, but at least significant portions of it to give me an idea of what was happening. We could see logging companies, mining companies, you know, extractive industry companies and how they were behaving it. And the consequences were also seen. I mean, if you were just working, say, for instance, for customs, but you were not connected to the forests or to nature, you, you would probably not see this. But I was, I came from this forest. I could see that these were our trees that were being chopped down, put on log, uh, boats and shipped off. I could see that this was, you know, uh, our natural resources and the impact. I mean, not all companies were misbehaving or, or, or ruthless in this regards, but a fair few were. Uh, and, and then I could see the connection between my people who were a forest people who were connected to nature people and, and they were being pushed by very powerful forces to alienate themselves as well and to adopt mm-hmm. a mindset and a mentality that, uh, that was hostile and destructive to their own natural environment. So I'm not sure if that explains it all, but that's, you know, I started to see that and I started in my own way to try to enforce the laws, to protect the people. Uh, but you know, it just became too difficult. And so. At each and every turn, I said, well, I'm going to try and climb further up the ladder so that I can continue this fight at, you know, higher levels. So I became the commissioner of customs and I continued that fight at that level, but I was overwhelmed. I realized that you, you can't really do much at that level other than to just facilitate and process. You're cog in this big wheel and it's moving in a particular direction and you have no control over it. So I thought maybe if I get into parliament and be a voice for my people. And, you know, and I did this also because I wanted to avert what appeared to be a looming uh, sort of a civil war, if you like. If you recall, in Papua New Guinea, there was a civil war in a place called Bougainville. Uh, and people rose up and fought against a company uh, for a number of reasons. But one of the main reasons was because of the pollution of their river systems by a giant mine. And as a result, you know, that war led to the deaths of 20,000 people 
Oh and, my God. And, and today, Bougainville is still not, there's a huge generation of people who are not educated, who are not connected to the world and who are very hostile to Papua New Guinea, their home country, and who are very hostile to the world, you know, uh, and very suspicious. Uh, and so the people of Bougainville, who I'm connected to because I lived and grew up there as well, uh, they stood up and they fought a government that they felt had betrayed them. And indeed, the government did betray them because instead of sitting with them and listening to them, the government at that time sent in mercenaries, you know, hired from the UK, but uh, mercenaries, organization called Sandline, you know, and they came in there and fortunately the military, uh, the military sided with the people, the military that had been fighting on behalf of the government against its own people said, oh, well, look, this is enough. We can't have this. And they actually... Uh, captured the mercenaries and, and dispatched them. They, they put them on the plane and kicked them out. They, they all held them under gunpoint and they carried out a coup and removed the government of the day at that time to oh save God. the people of Bougainville. You know, now this sort of sentiment was starting to brew in my province against those who were involved in logging. And so I said, look, let me go to parliament and let me represent you in there and let's, let's see what we can do. And if it doesn't work, then I'll come and join you and we'll do exactly what we intended to do in the first place. But let's exhaust this process. And so that's what we're doing. And I've been fighting ever since against these illegal logging cartels and we've removed most of them. There's only two left that we are now in court with. And it's very frustrating because we are forced to take these actions uh, at that level, take it to court because the government systems have been so compromised and so perverted and corrupted that they work against me and against what we're trying to do, which is right and by our people and by the environment. And, and that's the same case in many parts of the developing nation landscape, where, where if you go to a developing nation, you'll find that government machineries have been, uh, have been hired. They've become mercenaries mm. themselves and they are paid for by giant cartels, uh, companies, transnational organizations who utilize these government services for their own benefit. And it is usually to the detriment of the interests of the people of that nation and the future of that nation. Yeah. Mm, absolutely. So that's my story. <laughs> It's a fascinating story. And if we had more time, I'm sure we could do like a whole series of podcasts on every single step of it. Um, but let's get into what actually is happening to Papua New Guinea's forests. Then, how do these, you call them cartels, how do they function? Um, where are they from? What exactly are they doing to the forest? And why, why is it so terrible? Well, these cartels, they come from Malaysia. And they've done that in Malaysia. Screwed cartels have raped and plundered Malaysian rainforests. And the, the environment in Malaysia is very similar to PNG, not just the forest, but also the people who own the land. And what happens is that they, they're so, you know, by Western terms, they're miserably poor. Okay. They have land and they have an amazing life and they have access to all types of, you know, their own natural environment that most people around the world don't have, but they are in increasing need of modern services, especially in health and education roads. And also, uh, they're ruled by the Western world or the, not the Western world necessarily, but the corporate world, which promotes 
uh, you know, materialism as a form of civilization. So mm. they feel that that's, that's civilization. And then they've been convinced and told so many times and it's been drummed into them by churches, by colonial organizations, by the media, you, whatever. So they feel that they need to be connected to that world. You know, they're under pressure to be connected to that world. And so the only way they can be connected to that world is to have money, okay? And to have money, they need to look at what they have and liquidate that so that they can have the money to be able to connect themselves to that world, okay? Now, most of these people are illiterate or, and, and they don't know any better, you know, because they've been told that this is world, this is how civilization is. And on the one hand, they're told this civilization. And on the other hand, they're often rebuked in their own homes uh, and by their own people, government, by those who are supposed to be educated and civilized, that their world is, is an inferior world, you know? So, so as a result, they're in a very vulnerable position to be exploited and they are yeah. instantly exploited by organizations like this who come and say, Hey, look, we'll build you a role. You need it. And, and, and then we'll build you what do you need, a classroom for your children? There it is, classroom. Or oh, you want a church? We'll build you a church, you know, and they do this. And, and the people think, wow, this is development, you know, and they sign away their rights to their own land in a heartbeat because they're so desperate for this type of connectivity that they've been told is civilization that they are there and signing away their rights and suddenly then they don't know the value of the forests or the timber that, you know, once liquidated, its monetary value is completely unknown to them. There are a few of them who are very educated and, and usually they act as the middlemen and instead of protecting their people, they sell their people out, you know, because they too think that that's the right way, that, hey man, that's capitalism and doing that is being modern and civilized. So, you know, you're going to kick someone in the face to get a hit. That's the mindset that we've been told is civilization, so we'll do that, you know, and, and there they are. They, they, they're signing away their rights, their forests are going, and they, they look at their forests disappearing, but then they look at their road and their school and their little church, and they think, oh, well, we've got this, you know. And they're made to feel that what they've got, they're very fortunate to have. And if it weren't for the logging companies, they wouldn't have that, and they'd be still stuck in the dark and, you know, be uncivilized and unmodern and therefore inferior humans. And so there is that situation that's created uh, and the government, which is supposed to protect them, is already bought and owned and on the side of the logging companies, you know, in many instances, okay, from all levels. I mean, you've got the primary guardians who you can say are the political leaders, and then you've got the secondary guardians who you can say are the public service, you know, and, and both of them have been compromised. They, they, you know, they're not standing guard at the gates or at the doorway. They've gone and opened the gates and the doorway, and they're letting these insidious creatures in. You know, and so that's what's happened in Malaysia. And they brought that and have applied it to Papua New Guinea and they've applied it to the Solomon Islands. These are the same characters, they're the same organizations, and they're just using a tried, tested, you know, formula that works. And then they just throw money around uh, and they've already budgeted for this. They don't pay their taxes, so they've got a lot of money available to bribe and corrupt and compromise and henceforth so forth. And they came into Papua New Guinea in the 1980s uh, and they kicked out legitimate timber companies, legitimate forestry development companies, which they were there, and they booted them out. 
and they completely stifled the downstream processing that was already in place and they've gone into complete round log exports. Now they engage in round log exports because it's easier for transfer pricing and tax avoidance purposes, you know, and, um, they're, they're entrenched and, you know, they've, they've taken so much control of, uh, the various state entities that are tasked with checks and balances and they've compromised all of them. Uh, mm. and what's frightening is left alone over time, these organizations grow larger and stronger and they've, they've invested significantly into political stock. So now they control a large chunk of the political landscape. And I can tell you a couple of stories that can explain this, uh, if you wish to hear them. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> so for instance, when they first came in, there was an inquiry instigated, uh, in the, you know, after about 10 years, uh, certain people in government, in parliament saw that something was not right. And we had a, for example, we had a forest minister who actually wanted to do the right thing. Uh, his name was Tim Neville. Okay. He was the minister for forests and he was the member for, I believe it was Alotau in the Millen Bay province. And so Tim instigated a inquiry and in that inquiry, it's quite instructive, uh, what happens after he instigated this inquiry, <coughs> excuse me, he instigated this inquiry into criminal organizations involved in forestry. And it was called a Toss Barnett inquiry. And it was headed by justice or an ex justice, an ex judge by the name of Tox Barnett. And he carried out this inquiry and his terms of reference were to investigate the involvement of criminal organizations in the forestry sector. So Justice Barnett went about carrying out this inquiry with his team, with given some funds, and he did a great job, but his inquiry exposed certain criminal elements. And it, in fact, it, it triggered the very response that indicates that there was criminal involvement in the forestry industry. The fraud squad office within the police force was burned to the ground. <sighs> the forestry yeah. office was burgled and all files completely removed or destroyed. The minister was almost shot and Justice Toss Barnett himself was stabbed and had mm. to be led back to, Papua, uh, to Australia and he never returned. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fast forward. That's in the nineties, early nineties. Fast forward to 2011. Massive land grabbing undertaken by this organization, which had manipulated its political stock to pass laws that allowed them to have access to significant portions of land in Papua New Guinea. They had also triggered the the review of a provincial government system so that they could centralize the issuance of permits and licenses in headquarters, Waigani, rather than back in the provinces because the provincial governors were saying no. So mm. to get around that, they said, well, we need to have these reforms and they put their little minions to work to structure this. You see, this is the, this is the, this is the danger about transnational criminal organizations that a lot of people don't realize. Not only are they carrying out transnational criminal activities explicitly that you can see violent or basically crimes that you can, you know, 
see that the elements of the offenses indicate they are crimes, but they are also manipulating government policy and they are having a hand in the development of legislation that allows them to have access to the very resources that they are after, the very resources upon which their criminal organizations thrive, you know. So they put policies together, passed them through parliament, and they had access to vast forested areas under the pretext of agricultural development. <laughs> mm -hmm. It was called Special Agricultural Business Lease, or SABL. And they took a chunk of land, you know, chunk of land. I mean, I'm talking huge amounts of land. I think it's something like 5 million square kilometers or something like this. Huge, huge. And, and a lot of people were up in arms about this, a lot of landowners, and rightly so. They were saying, hey, we were never consulted, and it's true, they were never consulted. Where's, there's no free prior informed consent from us. This is not right. And these companies were on a rampage, raping and plundering these forests. And people started to push back, and there was hostility and fighting and whatnot. So the government of Sir Michael Sumara at that time carried out an inquiry called the SABL inquiry, and they forked out something like 11 million kina, or sorry, 17 million kina to carry out this inquiry, and they appointed three people to do the, the, the inquiry, including an ex-chief magistrate. And they did a very wonderful job, and they found out that 97% of these so-called SABL leases were illegal, were criminal. Now, what happened next is also instructive in regards to how this organization has grown from being just a very violent criminal organization that operated from the 1980s through brute force to now a more sophisticated entity with a lot of political stock because they carried out a political coup and they removed the prime minister at that time and they replaced him with their own people. And the SABL inquiry collected dust, nothing happened, none of the recommendations, and they renamed it. They passed a law and they renamed it, they called it forest clearance authorities, just smaller areas, but it was the same thing, you know. And the, the raping and plundering of the forest continued. So now, mm -hmm. you know, you've got this little criminal outfit that came in, they've now become sophisticated, they've got political stock, so instead of stabbing judges and trying to assassinate ministers, which they can still do, they've now migrated or evolved to a level where they can just have politicians remove a prime minister. That's where they yeah. are now. And yeah. now they're keeping not just the, they're not only having an impact, negative impact on the political landscape, but they're now moving into the economic landscape. They're now moving into finances. They're now owning, you know, private properties, gated communities, wherein a lot of politicians have houses that they've purchased at discounted prices, for instance. And they're now moving into banking, they're moving into other activities. It's a colonization of an entire country in a very covert fashion, and the country doesn't even know it. Absolutely. You know, if these people are, if it's Malaysians, as you say, then that means they're from Sarawak. And that is the um, state where they have logged, they have logged over 80% of the natural rainforests, these loggers. They are so practiced. They've killed people in Malaysia. They've bought out politicians. They're complete mafia and they're so, so, so dangerous. Um, but then that leads me on to say, you know, you're at COP right now and there was that deforestation uh, commitment 
the deforestation deal that was passed on Monday where, you know, the whole developing world and other nations, 112 nations, I think it was, committed to end deforestation by 2030. What does that mean if the, most of the logging is illegal? Does that mean anything? Exactly. Because if it's illegal, then we're just saying, hey, we're going to look the other way while these illegal activities continue. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. and by then the companies, you know, that gives them, the, not companies, but these cartels, that gives them enough time to go legit. You know, they, they say, okay, well, we've got other business plans. You know, the whole world's watching now, so we can't do, we can't do this. Now that the whole world is watching the spotlights on us, there's all these concerns about global warming and climate change. And, you know, there are international organizations and governments that are shining a spotlight on us. Why 2030? Why wait till 2030? This is my argument. Why not now? Mm. Why not just mm. get rid of them now? Because they're criminals anyway. They're already raping and plundering. They're there illegally. They're illegally operating. They're trespassing on traditional land. They're, you know, they're using state forces, including the police and government agencies to basically bulldoze their will and whim over the people who are the landowners, who are, who are genuine citizens and who deserve a better country and a better deal than this, you know? So between now and 2030, well, that's, you know, that's 80 years. That's mm -hmm. 80 years. Well, a lot of things happen in 80 years. A lot of trees can get cut down. That's right. A lot of logs get cut down, you know, uh, and they've got the machinery, they've got and they, they'll just go in, into accelerated mode to do this. And yeah. meanwhile, they may say, well, it's 2030, but, you know, the, the original was 2020. Well, that's come and gone. And the fact that we had a deadline 2020 and they couldn't impose and enforce that deadline, that tells you how powerful these guys really are, yeah. you know. So why 2030, yeah. you know? And I bet you, will it be 2030? No. Uh, they'll extend. They'll say, no, look, look, we're not there yet. We, give us another 10 years. Yeah. That's what will happen. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I think um, like this problem is so vastly misunderstood um, by you know the supposed leading nations that are meant to fix climate change, i.e., you know the people at the heart of climate change. Um, because as you say, it is colonization. First of all, it's difficult to talk about colonization when it's not the white man colonizing somebody else. Yeah, because it's you know it's Malaysians colonizing Papua New Guinea. It's Indonesians colonizing uh, West Papua on the other side of the island. Um, and further to that, there are cartels. I mean, what, what's it going to take? Is it going to take an international uh, organization that's essentially above the law that can go into Papua New Guinea and, and kick them out? How, I mean, how are you going to incentivize corrupt people to actually turn over and go, oh, no, actually, a green economy is okay? How, how do you do it? They are so, as you said, entrenched. It is impossible to get them out of Malaysia. I sent um, an information request to Sam Ling, one of the biggest uh, logging companies the other day. The Penans are an indigenous nomadic tribe, one of the last ones in Sarawak, and they've set up a blockade. And I said, right, okay, the Penans say X, Y, Z, why did you do this? Why did you trespass on their land? You know, the usual tactics and barefaced lies. They just said, no, that didn't happen. Yeah, no, I mean, well, they're criminal organizations, so we shouldn't be surprised or shocked. I mean, that's exactly how they'll behave, you know? Uh, and what has to happen, though, Rachel, is that this is a cancer and it needs to be treated, okay? And you can't expect an eight-post orderly to treat this cancer. You need an oncologist. You need a doctor. You need someone who knows about how to treat cancers to treat this cancer. That's what's needed, okay? And what I'm saying here is that 
Papua New Guinea can't treat this cancer itself. You know, mm. it can't. It's already compromised to a level where it can't. It needs international intervention. Because now what we have to also remember, you forget about sovereignty, okay? And I'm going to cause a lot of controversy when I say this, but I'm going to say it because these forests don't belong to Papua New Guinea. They belong to the world, okay? And we are all indigenous citizens of this world, and we all have a right to these forests because they are what sustain life, okay? Or they are part of the machinery that sustains life, okay? And exactly now, with COVID, we should be empathizing because what does COVID do to us? You know, incidentally, COVID's come about because of what we're doing to nature. COVID's a little reminder from nature, you know. He's helping us empathize because what COVID does is it attacks your breathing apparatus. And that's what we've been doing to this world. COVID is to us what we humans have become to this world, okay? And we should therefore be very empathetic now. We now know what it feels like not to be able to breathe. Okay. Mm. And this forest, they belong to the world. That's what we're saying. The indigenous people in that country or in any country are the primary custodians, but they need help. They need help. This is beyond them. You know, so that's why the goal, that's why the world needs to say, okay, we need to intervene. This is where the United Nations Office of Drugs and Crime should be doing something about this. You know, this is where other governments should be saying, okay, these characters, are, they're nasty. Where are their proceeds of crime going? Where is their money mm. going? What banking systems? What investments are they making? Who are these individuals? Are they directors and shareholders of companies anywhere? Are they purchasing property and moving and flying? Are they being given passports and visas? And how are they? Let's stop this, you yeah. know? Because if they're bad actors in one country, they're bad actors everywhere else. Well, of course, part of the problem is that corruption goes all the way to the top in, in most, well, if not all countries. I mean, look at Leonardo DiCaprio, who's been flown into COP26 to kind of be this special envoy or whatever it is that he represents to the end to discuss climate change. And the money that he was paid, the biggest fee ever paid out in Hollywood for that film, The Wolf of Wall Street, came from the cutting down of Sarawak's forests. And that's been proven. The money's been proven. Has he paid it back? No, he has not. Why is he here? Has he, has he even admitted to it? Have you, you know, he needs to be brought to account to that. That's, the FBI should be questioning him and say, where'd you get this money? Uh-huh. Oh, no, it's very interesting with DiCaprio. Uh, he was in, named in all of the Departments of Justice's um, documents at the beginning. And then a couple of years into the investigation, his name just disappears. You know, Rachel, when we talk about criminal cartels and you have this idea of a old school mafia outfit, you know, the Godfather type outfit, this isn't them, you know, the criminal cartels have, they're, they've evolved, mm. you know, they've not remained stagnant. They've evolved. They've got sophisticated means and they've got very highly intelligent people working for them and they've got the means to also secure the services of the most amazing lawyers and accountants and they often mm -hmm. do mm -hmm. you know and they've got economists on their payroll who draft economic business yeah. plan going into the future and how to operate you know they know what they're doing yeah. they're going to survive and thrive that's yeah. their MO, you know until yeah. they've stopped 
because there is no stopping these guys. So that's what needs to happen. And, you know, in the instant, the last vote of no confidence in my country against our prime minister was instigated by these guys. I'm, I'm very certain. And our prime minister survived. He was, he was not tipped to survive, but he survived. And it's because mm. of his hardline stance against these characters, you know, but he's been forced into a position where he's had to soften his approach so that he can continue to maintain office and try his best to address this issue, you know, yeah. uh, in, in a more careful manner than just attacking them directly because that will immediately, you know, result in, well, the results and consequences will be significant if we look at 2011 and the prime minister at that time, Sir Michael Sumare, was removed because yeah. he instigated this inquiry, you know. And that's what happens if you yeah. take the if you take these giants on. Yeah, they're very connected. I was I was told, incidentally, Rachel, uh, by a friend of a very powerful international organization, that they were told to pull their head in. And I was shocked that this organization. I will not reveal who they are, but I can tell you they are powerful. They're an international development organization. You would think that they'd be untouchable but they were told to pull their head in by their own headquarters because of these characters not wanting the spotlight on them. Good God. I mean, that just shows you. It just shows you how interconnected it all is. But then I think this leads us on really nicely to the question that's on everybody's lips after uh, COP yesterday, because yesterday was the whole green finance. Big business is going to save the world. Big business is going to come in and donate and do blah, blah, blah. And then you've got indigenous activists on the streets that are saying, well, big business are the colonialists. They are they are part of the problem. It's capitalism and extractive capitalism that has pushed climate change um, to this point where we need conferences like this. So what what is the solution? Can do you think that big business, much of which is kind of run in a cartel fashion, uh, such as logging? Do you think that can provide the answer? Do you think we can green finance our way out of this mess? It's a very interesting question. With uh, And I'll only give you my thoughts and opinions. <clears throat> I feel that what's happened is big businesses form their own cartels. And they've got conglomerates. They've got giant organizations that band together. They have lobby groups. They own the media. They, you know, they're basically taken charge of government. Okay. So there is this, there is this, there is this misconception, you know, there, that, that people own the government. No, you don't. Okay. It's a very simple rule. He who pays owns. Mm. And most people didn't pay shit for their government. You know, they think that they voted. So that's enough where well, you didn't, you didn't do more than that. So government, you don't own government. Who owns government? Government is owned by he who pays. And who pays? Big business. So they own government. Okay, so what we've got to do is look at changing that. And when big business no longer own government and people actually own government, then the government will work and fight for the people and be a government of the people, by the people, for the people, this blah, blah, blah that we've been told to believe, which isn't true in many or most instances. So, you know. What we're hoping is that big business will be responsible and out of self-pity, 
and out of self-preservation because, hey, man, at this rate, there might not be a future for us to make any more big profits. So we might as well do something about it. That's what we're hoping for. You know, we're hoping that big business will become this benevolent, loving creature and be kind to us. That's a, that's a huge hope to pin massive deals on. Surely we need something a little bit stricter, maybe something a little bit more legal and sanction-like instead. Well, we have to look at the structure. How is the, how is the political system structured? It's structured to give this facade that it works for the people, but it's not. So what kind of reforms do we need to see then? What kind of reforms would you like to see, either nationally or on the international stage, to get government to work for the people and make businesses well, benevolent? Well, if I made those claims, I'd immediately be outed as the communist sympathizer or socialist <laughs> or something yeah. like that, you know, because that, that's the usual defensive posture of governments and big business. You know, when, when anyone wants change and when anyone says, hey, this isn't working, they'll be like, oh my God, you're a communist. And then McCarthyism comes back into play, you know, mm. and the uh, communists are going to destroy this world and we must therefore attack them relentlessly and we must change governments and place our own dictators in place so that they can stop this horrible, evil communist, you know, machinery that's going to destroy us all. So, you know, I'm not a communist and I'm not a socialist, you know. I'm about this world and I'm about everyone being given an opportunity to live in it fairly, you know, and we can, and we can, there's so much, the resources are enough for everyone. All we need to do is be innovative, creative, compassionate, empathetic, and understand the fact that we are indigenous citizens of planet earth. The only world that we know of that has life. It does sound like a redistribution though. <laughs> Fair distribution is all I'm saying. Fair distribution. Yeah. yeah. All right. Fine. One massive uh, question. Um, at the moment, the green financing um, wizards are trying to say, you know, if we create a carbon market and if we incentivize people uh, to protect the forests rather than cut them down, then that's how everybody can keep making a profit and also protect the planet and blah, blah, blah. Um, I just obviously revealed my opinion. Um, but I read a really interesting article in The Economist yesterday that uh, was discussing how the carbon credit scheme at times can be another form of land grabbing because you are taking land away from native people, in indigenous people. You have to remove them in order to say that this land isn't protected. It's not stewarded. Therefore, if we put a protection on it, if we put the green finance logo on it, then it becomes a source of credits that can be used. Because the interesting thing about carbon credits that I didn't think about until yesterday is, of course, the forest has to be unprotected before it can be a source of credit. If you buy an already protected forest, then it's not a form of credit. And it's also a huge PR campaign because it, it, it's, it's not really addressing any of the real problems. Unless we really pay attention to the details and say, okay, well, how are we going to do this so that we achieve what it is that we're really wanting to achieve. So what, it is, what is it that we're really wanting to achieve? Are we really wanting to achieve uh, an, an outcome whereby we can save this forest and we can help compensate or pay reparations to the people who are the custodians and stewards of this forest? Is that what we really want? Or are we doing this so that we can show the world, hey, look, man, I'm preserving a rainforest. I'm a good guy. 
just leave me alone. I'm going to keep making money. And if you want to complain about me and what I'm doing, then read this. It's, it, it's written in green ink and it shows that I'm caring about everything that you're talking about, but not really, because I don't want to be disturbed while I'm making more money. So what is it that we really want? That's what we need to ask, you know, and if the companies are serious and I'm not saying they're not serious because there are a few that seem to be, you know, they're showing glimmers of hope that they might be a little hot in there beating away somewhere, you know, but is, you know, we, I'm not convinced yet, you know, that's, that's what I'm saying. And I do agree with you, you know, it's, it's, it's another form of a land grab. It's another form of just carrying on business as usual. David Attenborough said a great speech. That's nice. Good guy. Let's keep going. We need to make profits. You know, what is this? It's disturbing us. I just have, have one final question for you. Who would you like to platform? I mean, you should talk to Sir David Attenborough, I would say. But ah. you know. <laughs> Somebody I can access? <laughs> <laughs> I think um, you should talk to C4E Craft. I think they're doing some good work or at least moving in the right direction. You know, uh, there are some great scientific organizations that are, you know, determined to do what's right and carry on the business of trying to save the planet. You know, it's, it's all good for us to moan and groan and say, oh, yeah, everything's terrible, but, uh, what's happening out there? Who are the people that are doing things out there? And I, I think C4A craft, uh, an organization that are trying to do the right thing. So I would say maybe talk to them. All right. Fantastic. Cool. Gary, thank you so much for your time this morning. And thank you very much. It's been a wonderful opportunity to talk about these things. And I think we need to get this message out that, you know, uh, there are these dangers to the world and they need to be exposed. And once we expose them, then we need to be able to manage or treat them, you know, so that they're no longer dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Thank you. Thank you. If you want to learn more about these Malaysian timber cartels, visit Bruno Manser Fund and Sarawak Report. I'll put the links to these sites and Gary's social media over at www.planetcritical.com, where you can choose a paid subscription to support this podcast. Thank you for listening and for your support. See you next week.